Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 24th of March with me, Ian Welsh. I recently caught up with a regular guest in the podcast, Muslim Mass Director of Sustainability, Olivier Tichet. We talked about his concerns that some pending legislation changes risk wiping out 10 years of progress on deforestation and considered what the latest buzz phrase, verifying deforestation free, actually means. That's coming up. And earlier this week, I spoke with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar to find out more about some of the sessions at the Future of Climate Action Conference in June. First though, it's time for some sustainable business news. Something that stood out in the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report is the need for progress at pace. The final instalment in the IPCC's sixth assessment report is essentially a summary of the previous three, bringing the findings together and synthesising the results. It's fair to say that there's not a lot of good news. The planet is not on track to meet either the 1.5 Celsius or even 2 Celsius of warming pathways, with current commitments only able to hold warming at 2.8 Celsius if implemented in full. Such levels of warming would have significant impacts on agriculture and render some parts of the world unlivable. The IPCC says that 3.3 billion people's livelihoods would be put at risk. But the methods and measures that would cut greenhouse gas emissions so that 1.5 Celsius was possible are, the IPCC believes, available now. It is just that the pace of implementation at scale is insufficient so far. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, has called for a quantum leap in climate action and for developed economies to bring forward net zero targets to 2040. The new report is critical in terms of the pace of adaptation, saying that despite progress, adaptation gaps exist across sectors and will continue to grow under current levels of implementation. The IPCC also highlights that with every increment of warming, the risks of damage to the planet, such as coral reef decline or severe weather impacts, increase. Also highlighted is the concept of overshoot, accepting that warming limits are inevitably going to be breached and that the best scenario is to try and eventually put warming into reverse. No further significant pieces of research are expected from the IPCC until around 2030, so the combined four volumes of the sixth report are essentially the final warning of how to limit warming to 1.5 Celsius. Disclosure platform CDP has published new research into how companies are reporting on environmental impacts. Among the headline conclusions are that while Scope 3 emissions account for 11.4 times the typical direct emissions for a company, Scope 3 targets only make up 15% of new or in-progress targets. CDP describes this as a lack of attention to upstream impacts, and while companies are engaging with suppliers on climate change, 7,000 out of the more than 18,500 disclosing via CDP report doing so in 2022, far fewer do so on other nature-based metrics. Only 915 companies engage suppliers on water and 500 on deforestation. CDP also calls for better internal target setting and incentivization for senior management. 70% of C-suites will not be incentivized in water security before 2025, and only 3% have water-related incentives for their chief procurement officer. Further, perhaps unsurprising conclusion is that it is a small group of trailblazing companies that are leading the way. CDP says that 280 sustainability leaders are working through its supply chain programme and that over 16,400 suppliers to these companies reported to CDP at their customers' request last year. The suppliers reported savings of 70 million tonnes of carbon dioxide in the last reporting year due to supply chain engagement. So it can work. Highlighting the continual need for innovation to find solutions to the most challenging problems, an interesting pilot in Australia is developing a process whereby cigarette butts are consumed by oyster mushrooms, breaking down the toxins and microplastics in the waste and producing a potentially useful byproduct from the process. 
Cigarette butts are the number one single highest cause of litter and plastic pollution, as well as leaching harmful chemicals such as arsenic into the environment when discarded or put into landfill. The government of the Australian state of Victoria is funding a pilot project that could remove 1.2 million cigarette butts from landfill every year. The oyster mushrooms take up to seven days to consume the butts. They take 15 years to break down in landfill. The laboratory-based process produces a byproduct which companies hope could become a useful substitute for polystyrene. Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action Conference is coming up online from the 12th to the 14th of June. To find out a bit more about some of the key discussion points likely to emerge from the event and who's going to be involved, a few days ago I caught up with my colleague Natasha Bodnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha. Hi Ian, thanks for having me. So we're talking about the Future of Climate Action event. We're going to be looking at how to tackle scope 3 greenhouse gases. Some really interesting sessions coming up. I'm looking forward to a session, particularly on day one. We're going to be looking at sustainable sourcing and how effective procurement can drive supply chain engagement with Scope 3. So, Natasha, what are you hoping to get from this session? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this session too. And as we know, about two-thirds of a company's ESG footprint lies with their suppliers. So the role of procurement is so key in this conversation. So this session, uh, we've got a great lineup of speakers. We've got Mattel, Velux, and Interface. And they're going to be sharing some practical examples of procurement practices that can incentivize low carbon sourcing and also sharing examples of practices that don't. We're going to be looking at training, financing, incentives that are required to drive supply chain engagement with Scope 3 and think about how sustainability in general can engage with procurement officials more effectively. Very important to think about procurement. That's where so much of a company's impact stems from. And then think about how to drive collaboration within the business and also within the supply chain. Another session we've got is coming up at the event is looking at mandatory climate disclosure and how we can turn that into a business opportunity. What are you hoping to get from that session? This session, I think really interesting with all the evolving talk around mandatory disclosure. We've got CDP, the Global Director of Policy Engagement and External Affairs, speaking on that. So I'm looking forward to hearing how they think mandatory disclosure can be used to accelerate company action on climate. In particular, we've also got the head of sustainability at Signify, who will be sharing some insights in the work that they're doing and the impact that they're finding that mandatory disclosure on emissions is having for them as well as their investors. And then we'll be asking them both to discuss how far and how fast transparency and emissions data is evolving, because I think obviously this is something that's continually changing, and then ask them for some leading examples on how to communicate climate data effectively and efficiently in a way that obviously everyone can understand. Particularly interesting how the disclosure requirements are changing and evolving and how businesses are engaging with them. There are opportunities there. It's not just all about further onerous requirements for business. There are definitely opportunities to be grasped. Something else I'm very excited about, we've got a Q&A coming up with the CEO of Vera, David Antonioli, following up on our very successful webinar looking at the carbon markets. I'm looking forward to that very much as well. Natasha, it's going to be a great conference. We have a discount coming up, don't we? So listeners, if you want to attend the climate change event, it's on the 12th to the 14th of June online. We have a £200 discount on passes expiring on the 31st of March. Natasha, looking forward to the event. We'll come around very soon. Thank you very much, Ian. The Unintended Consequences of Actions is a recurrent theme in the podcast, not least from new and potential legislation. Palm oil business Muzum Massey's Director of Sustainability Olivier Tichet recently argued in a blog post that the impending EU legislation on forest products risks eliminating 10 years of progress in deforestation. I was keen to find out more and spoke with Olivier a few days ago. 
you wrote a blog recently highlighting some of the potential impacts of the impending European Union regulation on deforestation, and you said that they will potentially wipe out 10 years of progress. What are your concerns? I would say three that could fit in three letters and two numbers. SDG 17 on collaboration. That's what I think has been totally missed by the, the regulation, and that's where I think it's taking us a long time backwards. It was an opportunity for a new standard in, in terms of collaboration, in terms of recognizing the efforts made and experiences which have been successful, like FLECT in certain countries, the, the forest law enforcement, governments and trading and trade. And basically, it would be an opportunity to say that there is enough trust that we can move to a different level of collaboration. And unfortunately, it ended up as an uh, EU-centric uh, regulation, which is just about keeping deforestation out of the EU market, which really pains me to say, honestly. Because I think that there was a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of missed opportunity. But why do I say that it takes us so far back? Because it has a zero threshold on deforestation. So you cannot have one hectare of deforestation in a shipment, for example. And so what it means also is that if you look at what are the possible sources of risk and how you can manage compliance with EU regulation, well, smallholders are a problem. So you'd better not have smallholders in your supply chain rather than have them because any which one of them might become a cause of issues and one hectare from a smaller out of a supply base for a shipment that might be made out of tens of thousands of hectares, why do you want to take that risk? So it's better to exclude than to include smaller. And all the work which has been done, and I say about 10 years, on landscapes in particular, where it's all about how do you manage landscape, how do you bring everybody on board, all that good work now is lost because we are going to end up with very EU-specific and very restrictive supply chains for the EU. And I think that's a real shame. And now is the time to have better recognition of that work and to embrace it and to make it, to give it recognition, not sanctions. So it's a way of showing that having ownership of responsible landscapes was a good thing. And now we are going in the other direction, putting too much pressure on companies which will cause them to de-risk. And I'm not going to say disengage. We are not going to disengage. We know that some of our customers are not going to disengage on landscapes. They still believe in it, but it's really a missed opportunity. And it will take time to bring back that level of recognition that existed. It's too easy to ban deforestation. It would have been better to recognize the work and say, you know what, we'll give you more recognition, but we're going to also help you show that the guys who have done a good job well you should expand and it, it will promote that kind of practices. That's why I say it's taking us 10 years backwards. No, understood. So smallholders clearly are a particular concern here. How many smallholder farmers does Muzumas have in its supply chain? And I wish I could give you an exact number. What I can say, it's, uh, it's a few hundred thousand, possibly up to a million each year. And they're not always the same. Why do I not know exactly? Because we do not buy from the exact same meals every year. Or there, there's some movement in our supply chain. And some of those meals will also not buy from the same smallholders. Or rather, I would put it maybe the other way around, the smallholders might not sell to the same meals. Let's keep in mind that they are independent actors as well. So that's a big number, but they represent up to half of the volume of the products that we process. They're very important. We can, like I said earlier, for the EU, very well, we'll make dedicated supply chains for the EU. But what a shame. I mean, what an opportunity that is, that is missed. So what are the specific challenges in verifying smallholder farmers producing palm oil without deforestation impact? One of the first issues or what can be a perceived issue, I would say, is traceability. As I mentioned, farmers are mostly independent farmers, especially in Indonesia. And they are individual farmers as well, meaning they're not in cooperatives and groups. We might be used in Europe of seeing farmers, producers in large cooperatives. In Indonesia, most of the smallholders are individual smallholders. They're very independent. 
and they can sell. They have that ability to sell to multiple intermediaries. And these intermediaries will sell to possibly other bigger intermediaries who then sell to the mills, which sell to us, or sometimes even come to us. These intermediaries might or might not keep records. You have a great distance, fractured relationship, I would say, between the farmer and people like us. Then there is also another matter, which is attribution. And I mean attribution of deforestation, if we look specifically at that issue. It's not because there has been deforestation somewhere and that now there is palm on it in that same plot of land that palm was the cause of deforestation. Might be. I'm not saying it's never. It might be. There's been some very interesting academic work done about that by David Garou, who now has the new Santa Atlas on Malaysia, Indonesian, Borneo, and Kalimantan. And it was very interesting to see that link that he made or that he could find or could not find between the deforestation and palm. So how do we attribute to smallholders the deforestation? That's a major issue. How do we make them responsible? How do we determine that they have been the cause of the deforestation? Is it fair? So with the cutoff date of the EU regulation, which is quite generous, I must admit, 20, the end of 2020, nonetheless, looking forward five, six, seven, eight years down the road, how do we make it so that individual farmers who might move on areas that were deforested after the cutoff date, how are they treated fairly? And it's a very simple way. I agree. I love the simplicity of it. Simple cut of date, anything beyond the date is deforestation and should be banned to hell forever. Great. I don't think it's entirely fair to small farmers anyways. And I think it's it's a too blunt of an approach and it's not recognizing the work that's been done so far. Traceability, attribution of deforestation, two of the main challenges. We have to think on how we sidestep that, one or the other or both. It does feel that there's an element here of the perfect being the enemy of the good in terms of the approach and the work that's been done. How do you characterise where the sector is on smallholder traceability? Where are the areas of progress? Where are the areas of continuing challenge? There's continued challenge to get to 100% traceability on every smallholder because there's new ones all the time. Palm is a perennial crop. So by the time it enters the supply chain, it's already been planted a few years before. So that confuses a little bit the traceability. At the same time, what you just said is, is absolutely correct. As much work has been done by some of us on pure traceability, I would say, where you really want to know each every smallholder, I think there's also a better level of understanding. Is this the enemy of our actual goal? If our actual goal is to stop deforestation, if our actual goal is to identify areas at risk, do we really need that granularity? Or should we rather focus on not finding every smallholder, but finding every hectare planted in palm, regardless of who owns it or who's farming it. I think that our work is going in two different directions. There's a lot of resources devoted to full traceability and also to ways of going beyond that full traceability to find the areas where palms have been planted to see if they're compliant, non-compliant, presenting a risk or not presenting a risk. If you look at the traceability numbers of all the large companies which are transparent about it, we're all in the 90% plus. So we're actually, we've done a lot of work. And I think our industry should be recognized for that, to be honest. I'm not saying we need that recognition, but it would be nice that there would be some recognition that, all right, there's been a massive amount of work done. How do we use that? Instead of saying, well, you're not at 100%, it's not good enough. No, but how do we use the fact that we've achieved maybe 95, 96%? 98%. How do we use that? How do we leverage that? How do we make it so that the final 1-2% are not holding up different work or a different kind of engagement? And when you say 95%, do you mean 95% of total crop or 95% of suppliers? 95% of the volumes, I think. It's more what we're looking at. We're obviously very important for us what comes into the factories, so it's volume. 
A new buzz phrase in commodity supply chains is verified deforestation free. And this has been something that's being talked about in palm oil. What is the concept of verified deforestation free and how does it differ from certification, for example? The difference from uh, certification can be a bit blurred at times. It can be a bit difficult to, to see the difference. So it's quite similar, but it can also be a lighter way to certify or disguise certification, which it shouldn't be, in my opinion. And you'll see why. There are two main currents, I would say, in the in verified deforestation free. You use a third-party provider to analyze your supply base, and they, they return, and they rate it, and they tell you you are at X percent verified deforestation free because they can find areas where there has been deforestation past a certain cut-off date or illegal deforestation, basically, that enters your supply chain. Or you can do the work yourself and then get a third-party to verify your internal processes and maybe pick and maybe do some sampling on your data and assess not only the quality of the data, but also how you analyze it and to see if you have consistency in your processes to demonstrate that you are capable of saying, well, this meal is deforestation-free, that meal is deforestation-free, my supply base is X percent deforestation-free. And it's something that you can claim because you've done it correctly and you open up your books to a third party. But that, of course, poses the issue of trust because those third parties, can they be trusted? What value does it have against a standard, a certification standard, which is public, where everybody can see the bits and pieces and where the reports are public and everybody is applying the same standard, or at least everybody using that standard will use the exact same framework. There is no standard for VDF today, and it still is mostly seen as a private sector initiative. This is where I think there is a bit of an issue. I would say that both VDF and certification have one major issue. They come after the fact. They have a great value because it can be very thorough certification. Even verification can be very thorough looking at the processes. It can also look at bigger volumes. It can look at your entire supply base where a certification may be more limited or be partial. But they come after the fact. It's not a management tool. It's not a forward-looking tool. It's always what was your performance? What was your performance past tense? That is a weakness of certification. It's a strength, like I said, because you, you look at facts. But it can be perceived as a weakness. And again, is it really what we need for VDF today? Are you seeing the development of management tools then that can be more proactive, perhaps, in approaching deforestation? Well, I would turn it actually completely on its head. Like I said, this is mostly private sector-ish now, private sector or non-private, non-profit, let's say, uh, sector. The one person or the one contributor, the one stakeholder missing there is the government. So actually... VDF, if you want to look at it, and I'll go back to the UDR to a point, it's about how do you support better management of landscapes? Because we're looking at palm, it's our, it's our industry. But a landscape is not made only of palm. At the same time, if we really want to tackle deforestation, we cannot tackle it on palm by the time it's planted. In palm, it's too late. So you want to preempt deforestation. So how do you do that? Well, you have to work at landscapes. You need an enforcement power. You need to bring together a lot of stakeholders. And it's better done when you involve government, civil society, the private sector as well. And you can have some sort of verification on top to help improve management or at least qualify what is the management. That is what we should be looking at. There's been some trials. There's one in Ache in, uh, in the north of Sumatra, the island of Sumatra, and it's called a verified sourcing area. And I think that bears a lot of promise. And that is where I wish the UDR has gone. Sorry if I'm a bit obsessed by it, but it's something that is going to be shaking our industry quite a lot.
and that is creating a lot of tensions between governments. And I, I think that's where there was a missed opportunity. How do you recognize good work? How do you promote good work? How do you promote ownership by local governments? There could have been a completely different dialogue between governments if the responsibilities had been shared. Let's just come back to thinking a bit about how the verified deforestation free can work in practice. Clearly, there are some potential data confidentiality concerns if you're tracking between mills and smallholders in terms of data confidentiality issues there. How can these issues be alleviated? What are the practices that need to be put in place? It's really where there could have been an involvement of the government. The use of third parties is, is good there. It can help because it's a neutral space. So you do not need to share between buyer and seller some information that might be considered confidential. For us in particular, a lot of the information that our suppliers share with us, we agree we are not going to share it further, but we need to find a way to get it verified. It's very nice. Okay, we're well, mass. Everybody has, seems to have a very high opinion of us, which is great, but trust has to be built on more than a good name. You keep your good name by showing that you are happy to open up your practices, your information, but we need to find a safe way of doing that to protect our suppliers or to protect their data. So the use of third parties is there quite useful. You have some credible third parties that themselves get accredited for their assessment practices. You can use that as a safe space. What would have been even better would be if, like I said, the governments were involved, because then you could have different mechanisms where the governments would allow some data to be shared or would not allow some data to be shared, but could intervene to certify the data. And that would be even better. That would have, I think, if we look beyond a single landscape, that would have been the way forward for the exchange of data for, and how to make it a safe space again for exporters and importers. So what are the safeguards that are necessary to ensure accuracy of independent verification for everyone else and also the data security point? Well, that's the tricky one, isn't it? That's where it's easier to be in a certification standard. That's where it's easier to be in a legal compliance. Because if you're a certification standard, like I said, you have a public standard. It's all very nice and dandy. Everybody knows it. It's great. For independent verification to be efficient without a standard and without legal compliance, it then relies a lot on multi-stakeholder work. It still is within the limits of our industry. How credible can it be to outside parties? Even if we have involvement from the civil society, there is still something missing. And we're always at the risk of being accused of mishandling data, even though we are not. I think there's always a risk of a lack of trust of what used to be called the social license to operate. We're always at risk of losing that. And I think that's where the more stakeholders are involved, and if possible, not only the industry, not only civil society, but also governments, I think that's where you need that involvement. That ownership, it doesn't mean regulation, but it can mean some sort of oversight as well. Every stakeholder should manage a part of the process and share that process in trust. How much of this could be dealt with on the basis of pre-competitive collaboration? Is that possible here, do you think? I think it is possible. I think it's something that we've seen over the past. And again, that's why we should not go backwards. That's something that we have seen happen a lot. There's been more, not only talk, but also action about going beyond supply chains. So how do you do operations? We even us collaborate with one of our competitors in particular, and sometimes with others, on delivering training for suppliers. It's pre-competitive. We are not being accused to have to be a cartel. Everybody realizes, wow, actually, they are coming together and they are talking about things which are not about contracts at all, not about trade, not about supplying to them or not. It's really about what is expected, what can be done better, what information can be shared. So yes, I do believe there is a strong element of free or non-competitive collaboration. 
We've seen it as well with so with that VSA trial in Achetamia. You see it as well in some in the development of some reporting tools. There's been a reporting tool which has been developed, which is called the IRF, the Integrated Reporting Framework, which unfortunately seems to be limited to palm oil. It's a shame. I think it could be used by a lot of other industries. And where we have agreed on certain ways of reporting, again, in a safe manner. So how much detail you, you, you share or you do not share, but we all agree on the quality of the disclosure. That is quite important. I think there's been a lot of progress there, and we really need to keep that momentum going. What's the potential for verifying deforestation for this, this new approach? Can it be a solution that allows smallholder farmers market access? And, and if not on its own, what else is necessary to get there? It's a great concept, but it will not be scaled up or it will not achieve a massive impact if it remains a private sector thing. I think we must have the government as well involved. Um, we have to think outside of our supply chains. And I think it's a bit like you yeah, that movement uh, and you still have that movement where one village, one product. I think the Japanese are the ones who started that. Well, we have to think one landscape, one product. The point is not that everybody will do the same product or everybody will grow palm in one landscape, but how palm can be the engine for change for the landscape. And I think that is what we should be doing. We need to support sustainable management of landscapes. VDF can be a way of doing that as long as it's looking beyond supply chains. It's quite a bit of, a, of an ask, but I think we are seeing some interest there. And when I talk about governments, I'm talking about the district level governments who are really at the contact with the population, with the farmers, at the same time delivering services and at the same time providing enforcement. So the ones who have the real tough job of delivering, they're the ones who need some recognition, a lot of support, and that need to be engaged. And yes, it's harder. Of course, you need to talk in Indonesia to, I forgot how many Kabupaten or districts there are, 200 or 200 plus possibly even more. I'm sure I'm, I've got the wrong number. It's a lot harder than going to Jakarta and to talk to a couple of ministries. But at the same time, they are the ones delivering. They are the ones who need to take ownership for the management of their landscapes. And from the trials we see, from what we see happening in particular in Aceh, we can see that this is the right way forward. What are the signs of progress that we should be looking out for in the coming months? Well, exactly that. I think we should see more local governments being interested in managing their landscapes and doing forums. What we've seen work basically is that a local government says, well, this is all very nice. We have all these policies in place. We know what to do, but we need to get more collaboration. And how do you do that? Well, you create some sort of forum. You can call it whichever way you like. There is no single solution. Bringing in civil society, private sector, based in the, the area, not based in the area, that's totally irrelevant and see them take ownership of the management, saying, right, we've tried to be just the governance, and we see it doesn't work. How do we make it so that we have some actual landscape management, and how do we involve others? Keeping in mind that we are the government, you're not the government, we have certain things to do, we have certain powers that you do not have, you, the private sector, can do things we cannot do, you have expertise we do not have, but at the end of the day, we are the ones who are going to be enforcing things, and we're going to do things together. And it does work. It's, it's, that's fantastic. It's not a dream. So what we need there is to see that and to see central governments accept the fact that, yes, the local level governments have to be further supported and take the credit and not the central government. And that's tough. But the recognition will be worth it. The end result will be worth it. 
as ever, it feels like there's a need for everyone to continue to take a more grown-up approach to not think about turf guarding, as you just said, and to think about the collaboration and the landscape level that can drive this forward. But it's an exciting concept. Olivier, I look forward to talking again about whether many of these things have indeed come to fruition. But for now, Olivier Tichet from Muslim Mass, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian, and really looking forward to bringing good examples of what has actually happened next year, the year after, who knows. Absolutely. Thanks, Olivier. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for climate expert Mike Scott's latest column. This one is looking at the potential impacts of insect protein. And don't forget to register now for the Future of Climate Action Conference coming up on the 12th to 14th of June to take advantage of the £200 discount on three-day event passes. The offer expires on the 31st of March. But that's it for now. I've been Neil Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.